to be bouncing around throughout the book of Hosea this morning as we're going to start a new sermon series. I gave you fair warning last week. We are going to begin uh, teaching and preaching through uh, the minor prophets. Uh, they are known as the, the minor prophets. Uh, the 12 is what they were historically known as among the Israelites. Um, the minor prophets because they are the shorter of all of the writing prophets, um, unlike Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel that have upwards of 50, 60 plus chapters in them. The longest two of the minor prophets are only about 14 chapters long, and so we are beginning to work through this. So hopefully you were able to read through it last week. If not, uh, then I encourage you after we have uh, preached through it this morning that you go back and read it, and then also you can get ahead uh, looking to next week as we will turn the page and be in Joel, which is only about three chapters long. So this morning, uh, we are beginning with the first of the minor prophets, the book of Hosea. And boy, do we start with a doozy. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, uh, it is one of perhaps the most scandalous books in all of the Old Testament. Um, it's right up there with Judges and uh, many of the other books of the Old Testament. Just to set the stage, imagine, if you will, that a pastor one day goes out and marries a porn star. And then has the audacity to return to the pulpit and then begin preaching and teaching and proclaiming to you how it is that you should live your life. Imagine that couple begins to, the marriage is okay for a period of time. They have some children. They build a life together. But in time, however, that wife grows tired of that suburban lifestyle that she has been living. And she begins longing for that exciting life of lust and license that she used to enjoy so much. And so she abandons her husband and returns to work in the sex industry, which only proves to use and abuse her, leaving her damaged and destitute. So what does that pastor husband do? He goes and he takes everything that he has that he might bring her back. What would we think of that man? Would we let him step in our pulpit? Would we let him preach and teach to us? Would we follow his leadership advice? Would we follow his example because of the life that he is living and the woman that he has married? Would we maybe pity him for the hurt and the shame that he has to bear because of his faith, despite his faithfulness and because of her faithlessness? Would we ever pay attention to that man or anything that he had to say, or would we be so scandalized by his life decision that we would separate ourselves completely from him and ignore everything that he had to say? That's the story of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2 says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. God commanded a pastor to marry a porn star. And the people of his time responded in much the same way that you and I would respond to this fictitious pastor. Because Hosea was right before him. They ignored him and did so to their peril. And we must not do the same. The end of the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 9 I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, ends with this warning. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things, what is written in the book of Hosea. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. 
but transgressors stumble in them. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we come to this book, which is simultaneously scandalous and beautiful, it is scandalous to us, Heavenly Father, because it exposes the depth, the depravity of the sin, Heavenly Father, in our hearts and lives that we have oftentimes become so callous to. It rips that band-aid off. It reopens that wound and that scar that we might be shocked by our sin. And yet the even greater scandal is not how horrible sin is and how sinful we are, but how gracious you are, how loving you are. So Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would expose us for the sinners that we are, and show us the love that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In the book of Hosea, what we learn is that our sin is very serious, but so is God's love. Our sin is very serious but so is God's love. Throughout the book of Hosea, what we actually see in, when we take the all 14 chapters as a whole and examine them is we see everything that is true of the gospel of Jesus Christ clarified in the New Testament communicated in the Old. We see all of the essential aspects of the gospel in the book of Hosea. First off, we see as a major theme throughout Hosea's book is that our sin is serious. Perhaps the most major component of Hosea's message is this bold indictment against the people of Israel for their spiritual adultery. They have forsaken the Lord. They've turned aside to false gods, to worldly pleasures, and they're trusting in earthly powers instead of him. And this is the scandal of the book. The entire image of Hosea's marriage to Gomer in chapters 1 through 3, but then explained and applied to all of the people of Israel throughout chapters 4 through 14, is a picture of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And he uses the image of an adulterous wife to identify the heinousness, the seriousness of our sin. Throughout chapters 1 through 9, the root for the word whoring or adultering or prostituting shows up 20 different times. This is a scandalous marriage. So scandalous, in fact, that many scholars and pastors over the years have attempted to explain it away saying, Hosea never really did that. God never really would have asked Hosea to do that. It's just a picture. It's an image. It's a hypothetical scenario because there's no possible way a holy and righteous God would ask his prophet, let alone command his prophet, to go and marry a prostitute. And yet that is exactly what God does. Because God wants his people to see in the life of his prophet how scandalous their sin actually is. 
He wants to do away with all of the sensitivities and break down all of the walls that they've built around their hearts so that they are no longer sensitive to the reality of their sin, and he wants to lay it all bare in front of them. God repeatedly asks his prophets to do really weird things. It was Isaiah, I believe, that he asked or he commanded to walk around for three years prophesying with no clothes on. You're welcome. He's not told me to do that. But for three years, he commanded Isaiah to go around naked throughout Israel as a physical parable and portrayal of what was going to happen to them. They were going to be judged and left destitute with nothing. If he commands Isaiah to walk around naked, why wouldn't he command Hosea to marry a prostitute? That's the point of his life, of his ministry, of his prophecy. The point is the Israelites should be scandalized. The point is you and I, brothers and sisters, should be scandalized. We've grown so comfortable with our sin that we need prophecies and word from the Lord to expose it to us once again, that we might turn from it and turn to the Lord. And so we see the people sin again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. But specifically in the book of Hosea, Hosea is taking the people to task because of their idolatry. You see, brothers and sisters, the root of our sin, the root of all sin, is to first and foremost break the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods besides me. To break any of the other Ten Commandments is to break that one as well. Idolatry is the heart of the problem for the people of Israel. Idolatry is the heart of the problem for you and for me. The people of Israel had turned away to other gods and gone so far in chapters 2, verse 8 and 16 to associate the blessings of God with these false gods. God actually tells them in verse 2 as part of his promise, they will no longer call me my Baal. They had begun calling the Lord Yahweh Baal as they had so interwoven the worship between the two that they lost the identity of either one together. They'd forsaken the knowledge of the Lord. That appears repeatedly, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter and 6, and then again in chapter 5, verse 4. They have turned away from the knowledge, not just the understanding, but this relational component of knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing who He is, knowing Him personally. The people of Israel have forsaken that. Not only have they forsaken that, they are worshiping false gods. As again and again and again throughout the book of Hosea, they are brought to task for their idolatry, for taking their silver and their gold and turning it into statues that they bow down before. We see it in chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 14. But that idolatry of the people is is more complex than simply fashioning and bowing down to statues. It looked like two things in particular. It looked like licentiousness or a life of license and sin. Hosea chapter 4, verse 2. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
Their idolatry looked like something. It looked like living a life where they swear, they lie, they kill, they steal. That's five of the Ten Commandments right there. But beyond even that, Hosea chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, the Lord says, They have forsaken the Lord they cherish for whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding. It's not only lying and stealing, it's sexual sin as well. But beyond even that, in their life of license as they're worshiping these false gods, in chapter 12, verse 7, we find that a merchant is, has false balances and he loves to oppress the poor. So it works itself out. Their idolatry shows up in their life. The fruit of their idolatry is all of these things that you and I would understand as sins, plural. Our sins, plural, the things that we do when we lie, when we steal, when we cheat, when we hurt, that is all fruit of the deeper heart issue of our own idolatry. But it's not just that they are living a life of license. They're also looking to man instead of to God. They have forsaken the Lord and instead they're trusting in themselves and the political powers of the world that are around them. Chapter 5, verse 13. Ephraim has made an alliance with Assyria. They've sent to the great king. Hosea chapter 7, verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. Repeatedly, they have... They have, God exposes the fact that they are turning from the Lord and they are trusting in the world powers around them, the political powers around them, the military strength around them. Their trust is in what they can see and touch and is proven to control the world and no longer God. Chapter 10, verse 13. You have trusted in your own way and in your multitude of warriors. Their idolatry looked like something. It was real and it was rooted in their lives and it came out with a false trust or a trust in a false source and a life of license as well. But the question for you and me is, is that can seem so far away. Was what, is, what about us? See, when we attempt to understand this in our own lives, we have to be careful about putting it away and simply projecting it onto other people without allowing it to actually settle upon our hearts and our lives. We want to, to contain the definition of an idol to this wooden, silver, gold statue that people are foolish enough to bow down before. And most self-respecting Christians that I know when we say that we talk about idolatry, most self-respecting Christians would say immediately, there's nothing in my life that I love more than God. How dare you say that I don't love God or I don't love Jesus or I don't love him the way that I'm supposed to. I'm not an, an, an idolater. Of course, God is the most important thing in my life. He's God. Who can question that? We have to understand that the people of Israel and Judah never, hear me, never abandoned the worship of Yahweh. There's no record whatsoever that they abandoned the worship of Yahweh. Instead, what we see is they began to worship Yahweh and the Baals. Yahweh and the gods of Assyria. Yahweh and the gods of Babylon. Yahweh and... This is why adultery is such a fitting illustration for our spiritual idolatry and infidelity. 
Many men and women who are committing adultery, who are addicted to pornography, do not want a divorce. They don't want to walk away from their marriage. They just want their marriage and whatever it is that they are getting from that addiction or from that other person. However, any self-respecting husband would look at their adulterous spouse in the eye and would say, no, you promised to love me, to respect me, to honor me, to remain faithful to me. You cannot have both. And that's exactly what God says to his people then and his people today. To worship anything alongside of God is to abandon him completely. Because there is nothing that compares to God. Brothers and sisters, an idol isn't something that takes God's place in our life. That's the ultimate extreme. An idol is anything that would compete with our affection and allegiance with God alone. With God alone. So my question for you is to look deep into your heart and ask, what is it? that I look to spiritually, emotionally, physically to give me what only God can give me. To give me a sense of security. To give me a source of joy and pleasure. What is it that I look to that makes me feel safe and in control? What is it that I am turning to, run to, trust in? Where is my money going? Where is my time going? Where am I going? Brothers and sisters, we each and every one need to do a serious heart examination and prayerfully ask the Lord to take the blinders off of our eyes and off of our hearts that we might be sensitive to our sin again. That we might turn from it. That we might get that rush of adrenaline in our hearts when we're coming to that thing that we've been addicted to for so long that we have grown callous to over time that screams, this is not right. And we need to listen to that voice. Hosea's message is that our sin is serious. It's rooted in our idolatry, our love for anything alongside of God. But just as our sin is serious, so is God's love. This book is filled with testimonies of God's love for his people. And we oftentimes, when we come to the topic of love, we immediately assume that love looks a certain way. And we define it and we put it in this little box that says real love is what's kind and gentle towards me. What spares me any strain or any pain. That's real love. That love is not difficult. But true love has many facets. And the love of God that's displayed toward his people throughout Hosea and throughout time and throughout the rest of the Bible is... And shows up in two very distinct ways. First off, God's love sometimes looks like judgment. A rendering of a verdict because of our failures and our sin. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. God is bringing a case against his people because they have wronged him. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give, hear, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and, set, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. 
This book is a book about the people's sin and God's judgment of their sin and the impending discipline. And this impending discipline from the Lord and judgment against his people is not up for debate. One author said this, Hosea was a prophet of eventual hope and immediate doom. Their discipline, their judgment is imminent. God has made up his mind of what he is going to do. His people will be punished for their infidelity. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. They shall be utterly forsaken. They shall be put out of the land. They'll have no king, no place to worship, none of it. Verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. It's definitely going to happen. If there's any doubt about that, he wipes it away in Hosea chapter 5, verse 9. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. There's no getting around it. There's no skirting it. Hosea is here to declare the judgment of the Lord is coming, and there's no way around it. Unlike Jonah which we will see if the people of Nineveh repent and the Lord relents of his judgment. The time has come, it is over, and it is done with. God's mind is made up, and his discipline is coming down. Because of their sin and because of their hardness of heart. Chapter 5, verse 4, Their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. They are so far gone that there's no possible way that they will turn back unless God disciplines them. So God has, discer- has determined to discipline them. Chapter 5, verse 2, the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Chapter 7, verse 12, I will discipline according to the report made to their congregation. Chapter 10, verse 10, when I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. We oftentimes feel that God's character and promise of grace precludes us from not only suffering, but from discipline as well. That because God is gracious and he's full of love and he's merciful and he's slow to anger, God will never bring any type of stress or strain or pain or discipline into my life. So I can just do whatever I want. Paul addresses that. The truth of the matter is, if we really understand God's grace, that's the natural question that follows it up. Grace is so radical that if we really understand it, the only, comp- the only thought that would come out rationally is, well, then I can just do whatever I want, and, and God's already paid the price for it. Paul says, no, that's not the case. And we have a tendency then to abuse his grace and his mercy. The Lord has made it clear throughout Scripture that there are consequences when God's people turn from him and pursue other gods. As a matter of fact, you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 31, and God, as he is saying his, as Moses is saying his goodbyes to the people, God prepares Moses, and Moses prepares the people that says, we're going to come in here, and in the end, you're going to forsake everything that we've been through, and you're going to follow after false gods, and God's going to kick you out of the land. He knew even then that they were going to do this, and yet he loved them anyway. And Hosea is a powerful reminder to each and every one of us that because God loves us, he disciplines us. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. 
Punishment is the doling out of a penalty for an offense. It is about a recompense for a wrong that has been committed. But inherent in the notion of discipline is punishment for the purpose of correction and training. And God, because he loves us, will correct and train us with his discipline. He explains that in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. The Lord has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. This notion of God's discipline isn't just simply in the book of Hosea or the Old Testament. We see it in Hebrews as well. It's for discipline that you have to endure. Chapter 12, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Because God loves his children, God will discipline his children. He will not allow us to remain in our sin and rebellion. Instead, he will correct us and train us in righteousness that we might know him better and experience the peace of his presence and his love. So what might God's loving discipline look like in our lives? Well, it might look like God removing or even withholding from our lives the very thing that we're craving and worshiping. God says this in chapter 4, verse 10. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. They're worshiping the Baal gods because in worshiping the Baal gods, the Baal god was a fertility cult. And so as as we worship the promise, what we are going to receive is we are going to receive crops and rains and we're going to flourish with prosperity and we're also going to flourish as a people as we have children because that's Baal's job. He's to make things flourish. And so we're going to worship Baal as a promise that when we worship him, we will get crops and we will get kids. But throughout the book of Hosea, we see that God says they're going to do all of this and there will be no fruitfulness. Chapter 2, chapter 9, God sometimes wages war on the idols that we worship and he withholds from us the very things we so desperately crave when it's in competition with our love and affection and trust in him. But God's discipline might also be to simply expose the faulty foundations of what we trust for our safety and security. The people of Israel weren't just worshiping Baal and trusting him for their fruitfulness. They were turning to Assyria and Egypt, these world powers, as they were courting them that they might receive the blessings of being friends with these powerful places and that they might in return be powerful themselves. But God says in chapter 8, verse 14, Israel has forsaken his make, forgotten his maker, and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will set a fire upon his cities and devour her strongholds. Chapter 10, verse 6, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall put to shame and be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. They were trusting these cow gods that they had created. And God said, that thing that you adore and you love and draws all of these people attention, people's attention, it's going to be gone, melted down by the Assyrians. But eventually he tells them and he warns them what actually is going to happen is this Assyrian king that they're trusting so much is going to turn on them. And it will be Assyria that destroys Israel. Chapter 11, verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Sometimes that career that we're trusting in, that pursuit of wealth or power or money, that political party that we are seeing as the solution to all of our problems, God will pull the rug right out from underneath it to prove to us that he alone is God. 
But sometimes God's love is just simply letting us experience the consequences of our sin. We see that again and again throughout the book of Hosea, but specifically chapter 11, verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. The picture of Gomer, who is Hosea's wife, who was a prostitute, is that after she has the three children, one that says, whose name means God will scatter, one whose name means that I will no longer have mercy on you, one whose name means not my people, as she pursues, as she gets tired of that life with Hosea and she runs back to that life of pleasure that she had, it uses and abuses her. And you find in chapter 3 that she is back actually in a deeper and worse place than she started. She's in the slave market for sale. And Hosea has to scrounge up everything that he can to buy her back. Sometimes God's discipline looks like letting us really taste the consequences of our sin whether it be a divorce, a breakdown of a relationship, a removal from a position of authority and power and trust, God will let us taste the consequences. But God's love doesn't merely look like judgment and discipline. It also looks like mercy. The book of Hosea is the gospel in the Old Testament. Even as God disciplines his people for their unfaithfulness, Hosea gives us a picture of God's inner struggle that is so vivid, we would think it was blasphemous if it wasn't Scripture. One commentator, Bostrom, quote and notes this, No other book in the Old Testament includes such a detailed description of God's inner feelings as Hosea does. As you read the book of Hosea, God comes across and leaps off of the pages as a scorned husband who still desperately loves his wife. Chapter 6, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like dew that goes away early. You love me one minute and you hate me the next. You adore me one minute and you run away the next. You beg of me all of these things in one minute and then you worship somebody else in the next. God is heartbroken over the faithlessness of his people. God is seen as a heartbroken father who poured out his effort and his energy to provide for and raise up a child only to be scorned by that very same child as it grew up. Chapter 11, verse 3, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. And yet that same child basically spat in his face and pursued other gods and other kings and other ways of life. And yet, despite all of that, God's heart is torn. Chapter 11, verse 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart withdraws within me. My compassion grows warm and tender towards you. Despite their faithlessness, the Lord refuses to forsake his people. Though their discipline is imminent, their restoration is inevitable. Because throughout the book, the Lord promises his people his mercy. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. The Lord says, In the place where it was said, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and, and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, Say to, my, to your brothers, you are my people. To your sisters, you have received mercy. Chapter 11, verses 9 through 11, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come to you in, I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the, rest, from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Hosea chapter 13, I shall redeem them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where is your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is, not hid, is hidden from my eyes. You see, we see throughout the book of Hosea this dilemma in the heart of God. On the one hand, our sin is serious and deserves God's just punishment. But God's heart is to grant us mercy and give us grace. How then can we reconcile these two realities? Our sin and God's compassion. We find the answer in Hosea chapter 3, where the Lord commands Hosea in verses 1 and 2, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, chapter verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. In the New Testament, we find similar language. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's fitting that the 12 minor prophets begin with the book of Hosea, which is the same name as Yeshua, Jesus. See, Hosea points us to the greater Hosea, Jesus Christ, who pursued the very people who had scorned him and rejected him. He loved them and rescued them. He redeemed us with far more than 15 shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley. Jesus Christ gave his life, taking our place receiving the wrath we deserve as rebels, that we might receive his righteousness and now be treated not as those idolatrous, rebellious people, but as God's favorite son. He bought us from something far worse than a slave market. And then the result of the incredible promise of what God does through Hosea and will do for his people. And what Jesus does for you and me is in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In this personal, perfect, immediate way, intimate way, we shall know the Lord. Our sin is serious, but it is not nearly as serious as God's love and His grace and His mercy. Therefore, let us 
repent of our sin and return to the Lord and receive this love that he so freely gives to us. Hosea is filled with calls to the people of Israel to turn back to God. And that call is for you and for me today. Hosea chapter 2, verse 7, Gomer is there shown, and Israel through that is shown in chapter 2, verse 7. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. I can't help but think as Jesus Christ told that famous parable of the prodigal son, that he was thinking of this verse as he described that young man who had wasted all of his father's inheritance, was wallowing in the pigsties, and there, Jesus tells us, he came to himself and remembered it was the slaves in my father's house have far more than I do here. So God invites his people to return. Chapter 10, verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Chapter 14, verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. God commands and invites his people to turn back from their sin, to trust in him, to pursue him, to love him, to receive from him all that he has poured out, all that he was willing to pour out on their hearts and on their lives. And so we end where we began. Hosea chapter 14, verse 9 says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and upright, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The book of Hosea is a warning And it's a promise. Our sin is serious. We need to submit ourselves to the Lord and invite him to make us sensitive to our sin again. We need to receive God's love in whatever form is appropriate, whether it be his discipline. Have you been running from God? Have you been kicking and rebelling? And you're lamenting all of the broken circumstances in your life, maybe that's God's discipline as he pursues you and calls you back to himself to take him seriously again. Maybe you are one like me where I love to just wallow in the discipline because I know my guilt and my shame. And I'm trapped in this place where I'm constantly beating myself up in my own heart and mind. And I discipline myself when I don't feel like God is disciplining me well enough. The way that I think about myself and talk to myself. Maybe what you need to receive this morning is God's love that looks like mercy and compassion. Because Jesus is enough. He took all of the punishment that we deserve for our sin that we might be saved and set free and promised a betrothal to God forever. What do you need this morning? Which of those three do you need most? Do you need to be more sensitive to your sin? Do you need to submit to God's discipline? 
Do you need to receive God's mercy? I invite you to take a moment, bow before the Lord, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak deep into your heart and how it is that you can best respond. And I'll close this in just a moment.